Let's pray. Gracious Father, we again joyfully with broken hearts and timid minds and and scattered desires, God, we come to You to hear from Your living Word as sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing the soul and spirit, God, piercing us. I pray that we would see ourselves in light of You and Your glory, that You would be high and lifted up, and that we would see that we are entirely undone. And we would be crying out, Woe is me, I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips, and I live and I dwell in amongst a people of unclean lips. God, could we see Your holiness that condemns our sin, but could we find hope in Your Son? This very hour. Amen. Perhaps you guys remember Adam's story from last week. It was a little story about a a lady who needed a heart transplant, and unfortunately, a heart was made available through a car accident. And there was the heart that was in the cooler, it's on dry ice, or however they do it. And it needed to get to the hospital, and they needed to get to St. Mary's. So you have guy one who's got the super fast car and is, you know, not a receding hairline or anything like that. And he had this fast car, but he made a ton of excuses of why he couldn't do it. He was busy, his car needed an oil change, this or that, whatever it might be. Then there's another guy, uh, Gary, who had this old Toyota, you know, it was so broken down it just said the yo on the back, you know. And it was, but he was, he was willing and he was ready. And so Adam kind of had that story, and, but he didn't tell the rest of the story. So what happens is that Gary gets the cooler and he's cruising down 52 and everything is going well until there's steam starts bellowing out from underneath the hood, but he's undaunted. So he, he had no, you know, button for the windows. He's cranking down his window, throwing his head out the side and he's driving down. But, Soon, it gets worse. And the construction, uh, the, the dump truck ahead of him hauling stuff away from the construction site has some lumber and nails. They hit some pothole. That they spill over and go, okay, okay. So now he's got the flat tire. He's cruising down the road, but he's still going to make it, isn't he? He's willing and he's able to serve. But then the story goes on. As soon it's no longer steam pouring out from underneath the hood, it's smoke pouring out from underneath the hood because the engine's overheating because he doesn't have the water pressure. And so the car is starting on fire. So he ditches it in the ditch and he, he jumps out and he grabs the cooler and he starts running to St. Mary's and he gets there just in time. Minus one car, but he gets there just in time. My friends, it is men and it is women like this that will make a church thrive and flourish. Sure, you don't have the best car. Sure, what, I mean, you might not have that, but you're qualified to serve by the very fact that you are serving, right? With whatever God has for you, whatever circumstances you might be, you are serving within those circumstances. And in our text this morning, we were going to see before us, what are we to do? How are we to serve? Wow, we are to serve like a king. Our almighty king who has come before us. And he has laid the path of how we are to serve. And the manner in which we are to do it. So we see, and as, as Jeff was going through this text and reading it for us this morning, you see this exaltation of men. Men lifting themselves. 
lifting themselves high. But then you also see the service of our Messiah, the service of Christ, who has come. And though He is high, He has humbled Himself. Though He's leading, we will see how He leads. And so let's, let's just work our way through the text here, beginning with verse 32 here. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were not astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And you see the context right above these verses in the earlier part of chapter 10. You see Jesus and his disciples, his engagement with the rich young ruler, don't you? And, and they leave that wondering, how can anyone, how can anyone possibly be saved? And the disciples, they're left astonished, and everybody else is left afraid because they know there's no other way. And here's Jesus. He's leading the way, leading the way. And it didn't have to be added by Mark, right? But Mark, he makes it really clear that it is Christ leading the way and the disciples that are following behind. And while they're away, going up to Jerusalem, going on their way to Jerusalem, he lays before them the whole plan of their ministry. What are we going to do? How is this... Church gonna thrive and grow. What's your, what's your mission statement? Well, okay, he gives it to them. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Okay, it's gonna be great. Here's where we go. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the, to the teachers of the law. Okay. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And the very one whose words had just brought them astonishment and fear are now telling them of his impending death. And it's as though they didn't even hear it. Do you see that? How did they respond here to the, to the creator of the whole world coming into his creation and saying, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to condemn me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to crucify me. How did they respond? Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What? No, no, no. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit on, crucified, three days later raised up. Oh, okay, okay. That's fine. It's as though they didn't even hear it. It's like you have a five-year-old sitting in the room playing with Legos, and you call out her name, and it's like she doesn't even, you know she's physically hearing you. She just doesn't care, right? Over and over and over again. Oh, they don't, but they don't even care. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Such a request must never Never be made of God. But isn't it in our heart to do such a thing? And you, you notice they didn't even ask of him, of him. But what did they do? They come to the Creator, the very one giving them breath, and they demanded it of him. I want you to do this for me. You must do this for me. Well, this is just, well, this is just idolatry 101. This is the trappings of idolatry, isn't it? You, you take a God and you fashion Him however you want Him to look in order that He will do whatever you want Him to do. And some of us, we, we come to this church, we come to a church, any church, with these, these same desires. 
I want this, I want that, I don't want this, we must not have that. But do you really want God to give you all that is in your heart? No, no, you you don't search your heart. Examine yourselves, Paul would write. Examine yourselves. It is the last place, it is the last well from which you must draw requests before God. So let us not look inward, but look unward. And so when look at our Messiah. What was his temptation? Was to, to pass from this cup of suffering with drops of blood coming down from his brow when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It would have been so easy, it would have been so natural for him to seek his own will, to establish a kingdom apart from the Father, to establish a kingdom free of his own suffering. But no, what was his plea? Did he come before the Father and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask? No, 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 what was his plea? Not not my will be done, but your will be done. We're sitting here and it's so easy, isn't it, to resolve in our hearts that we will be the ones making demands of God. As though we are the ones in position over God and He is the one that must listen to us and must fulfill these desires that are arising within our hearts. That we are going to be the ones that determine the the affairs of our life and how they're going to be orchestrated within our lives. So as though we are the ones that determine it and God is just some idol. We come to Him and say, oh, we want you to do for us whatever we want. Oh, I I must have a better job. I need children. I need to be married. I need, I need, I need something else. And we look within this world instead of looking to God Himself. Teacher that call to Him. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. But if that's in your heart, if that's the request that you're making before God, don't even bother calling Him teacher. He's just some servant of yours to do your becking and your call. To do a Whatever you will, not whatever he wills. I hope that is not where you are within your heart. For many of us, me included, that is where we often are. We, we approach God with this list of requests and demands rather than in sheer awe that we as sinners would be able to come into the presence of God. Remember Queen Esther, she comes in the presence of King Xerxes, knowing she could die, just coming into his presence if he doesn't welcome her in. We, what do we do? In prayer, we come and leave our boots on and go trample on holy ground as though we're, God is honored to have us there with us. As we are in awe of ourselves, rather than being in awe of the fact that we can come into the presence of God. Come as we gather as a body into the presence of God, singing and worshiping, coming to His throne and worship and praise. What do we do? We just come with our our list and our demands. And then, such an approach to Christian life, with making demands of, of God, well, then we're often surprised that, well, what do we do of our brothers? In the faith, well, we just have lists and demands for them as well. The same attitude we have towards God is the same attitude we have towards our brothers. 
We have lists and demands of God. We have lists and demands of our brothers. God must fulfill them and they must fulfill them as well. But no, let us just be broken. But you see in verse 35, what does Jesus do? He, he kind of placates him a little bit, right? He says, okay, okay, okay. So, you pulled out your sword. You can fall on it here, he says. What do you want me to do for you? In verse 36. And their response is such a clear indication. It's a clear window into their heart, isn't it? What are they, what are they not saying? They're not saying, oh Lord, we, we just heard that you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles and mocked and spit on, flogged and killed. We'll never leave you. Give us the grace to stay with you during that trial. Did they say that? No. Are they, are they saying, Christ, let me carry your cross as you will be the one unclean and going outside of the camp. Let, let me carry your cross. Are they making that request or that demand? No. No, they're not. They're not saying, Lord, you say you're going to rise in three days. Where, where should we be so we can see your glory when you rise from the dead? No. No. They, again, they, they have no clue. Their eyes are not open. They don't know what's going on. They see the constant crowds and all of the, the, the excitement, right? And you can hear them singing, James and John, right? What would they be singing this morning? They would have been singing, Lift high the name of James and John, of James and John. They sing, right? <laughs> right? Tozer was right. Christians, we don't tell lies. We sing them, right? Of Christ, but he, he tells them, yes, let us partake of your glory, they want. And Jesus says, yes, you will partake of my glory, but in a different way than you think. You will partake in the glory of suffering. You want to exalt yourselves. Okay, that will happen, but it will happen through suffering. And go to the book of Acts. You see James is beheaded by Herod Agrippa. John is banished to the island of Patmos. And there's an interesting Latin uh, tradition that he was actually boiled in, in oil and survived. And thus, um, do you want to partake with that? Yes, yes, you can, but you will partake in suffering. Because you know that the first will be last, and the greatest among you must be the slave and the certain. So if you want to be with me, yes, you will be with me, but you will suffer with me. You will drink the cup of my suffering, you read in verse 39. Yes, you will drink the cup of suffering and you will be baptized me and you will be immersed into this life of suffering with me because that is where Christ's glory, that's where His glory shines, my friend, is in this midst of suffering. And so it's so easy for us to be like James and John, right? We look at the disciples and we think they're so foolish. But no, it's a great mirror for your heart, for my heart. Is it not? So we come to the church and we see all the exciting things that are happening. Community groups, people, you guys are, are an amazing church of gathering together. This Sunday morning is not enough. So what do you want? You want community groups so we can get together once a week. And even that's not enough. So we'll get outside, get together outside of the community groups for discipleship and school of theology and, and as Adam was sharing, this missions to Ecuador. So we could, we love our church so much. We want other churches. Ecuador. Okay. Let's go. It's so easy for us to come alongside of this, to, to see this happening just in Sunday school class, which is 
depleting this Sunday school class week by week. We see groups of men and women who gather together to seek the face of God every week. That the gospel within this city would not just be a flicker of light, but that it would be a raging and consuming fire. And that revival would spring out of God's glory and His grace being rained down on this city. You guys are an amazing, amazing church. So this invitation is to come, just like it was for James and John. The invitation is to come. But as in James and John, they would come and they wanted, what, let us sit and receive glory, right? So often it's, it's easy to come to a church like this and say, oh, okay, let me participate on the sidelines with my eyes and just watch and see what's happening. As though that would be sufficient. But no, the invitation is to come and to come and suffer with us. To come and drink the cup of suffering and be baptized into the sufferings of Christ. For that is where Christ partook of His glory. And it was true of James and John and it is certainly true of us as well. We must never, we must never, my friends, exalt ourselves. That's our natural man. Left unchecked, that's what we do. So if you're thinking, oh, that's not me. That is you. You're wired that way. Everybody, from Adam and Eve on down, you're wired that way. You want to exalt yourself. But must, we must, we must not do that. As a church, as we are looking for elders, we must not accept men that do that. No, no, no. I must decrease. He must increase. We must lower ourselves that Christ might be exalted. We must empty ourselves that Christ's glory might shine and be full. Christ alone is the one that must be exalted, not ourselves. So let's go through the rest of these verses here. We'll just jump down to verse 42, but we're going to be seeing how we are to serve. Okay, so we don't exalt ourselves. Well, okay, so we're to serve, but how do we serve and How do we serve like a king? Let's pick it up in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So what does it look like to serve? And and how do I find my place in this body of Christ? First, again, we've seen what we ought not to do. We don't lord it over the other people as the Gentiles will do. James and John, if you want to be great, don't lord it over other people. No, no, no. Pour yourself out. Pour out your life. That is how you'll be great. Great in the eyes of God. Beloved, let this be the mark of the elders of whom we are seeking. Let this be the matrix through which you are judging them if they are qualified or not. Are they pouring out their lives? Let that be the one that 
typifies our elders is that they serve and that they give themselves as as slaves for the sake of the sheep, for you guys, that they would become slaves to seek your good and give up themselves. But doesn't this follow the whole trajectory of Scripture? Right? Isn't that what we see, that God will use the least among us to perform the greatest things? Look at Moses, for example. He grows up not just in the court, but within the home of one of the most powerful families in the world. Was he qualified then? No, no, he wasn't. Qualified to lead God's people? Certainly not. But he fled from there and he chased sheep for 40 years. And he was broken. And he was humbled. And he was, he was slow of speech when he went before Pharaoh. And so when you guys think, oh, I haven't accomplished anything, I haven't accomplished anything, I haven't done anything, quite frankly, I've just I've run away. Ah, well then you're in a good spot. You're in a great spot for God to use you. Because you know that there was, there was no burning bush before there was brokenness in the life of Moses. And you see also who he passed his mantle on to, Joshua. What, you read Joshua, just chapter 1. What's the repeated theme over and over and over again? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous in the Lord. For the Lord your God shall be with you. Why does why does God, God Himself, the Lord, speak this to Joshua? Why? Because he was timid. He was fearful. If he wasn't, if he was strong and courageous, God wouldn't say it to him, right? But no, he wasn't. And that is the very man that God used to lead his people into the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham centuries earlier. Be strong and courageous, strong and courageous. Somebody who is timid and fearful, that's who God used. That's who God used. Look at David as well. He wasn't even from the least of his tribe. You even look within his family. He was from the least within his family. So Samuel comes and he knows he's going to anoint a future king from the sons of Jesse. So what does he do? He looks through all the brothers but then there's this one in the, in the fields. Even his own brothers overlooked him. His own father lo- overlooked him. But he had one thing. He had a heart after God. And sure, Saul is throwing spears at him. And sure, he's a, what does he do when his son rises up in rebellion? What's the first thing he does? He runs away. Right? And worldly men like Joab, his, his army commander, worldly men like Joab look at him and, and see that he's weak and that he's nothing, right? But Paul would say that this is a perfect vessel for which the power of God is made perfect. I hope you see that this isn't just for Moses and Joshua and David and Rahab and Rebecca and Ruth. No, 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 no. This is for you. Each one of us is called to serve within the context that God has for us. We we worship a sovereign God, so where you are in your family situation, in your life situation, here at this church, this is the will of God for you to be here. So what do you do? You serve within your context. What are you going to do? Change the sovereign will of God to have a better context. No! You serve, you pour out your life in the context in which God has for you. So you want to be a missionary. And God gives you that desire from His sovereign will. Well then, then go. 
If you know that it means your blood will be spilled into the thirsty Arab sands, go, go and serve. But if you're not called to go and you're, you're a mom here, and you know you can't go and spill your blood being a missionary and having books written about you, what do you do? Will you serve in the context that God has for you, don't you? So some of you are your moms, and you, you finish cleaning, and so it means everybody who has made the mess, sometimes dad included, scatters off and they're in bed, right? So you finish cleaning, you're the last one to bed, you wake up at one, you feed the baby, you wake up at four, you feed the baby, and you wake up at six to a three-year-old bull running down the, uh, running down the hallway, shooting off his new cap gun that he got for Christmas. And you don't quite know when the last day has ended, but you know that the next has already begun. If that's what God has for you, be joyful. And serve God within that context that he has for you. Some of you, some of us, are drinking a cup of of suffering. Have the resolve like Job. Have this resolve within your heart that you will continue to seek after God and that you will continue to serve God. Not regardless of your situation, but because of your situation. Because that is what God has for you. It does you no good to continue to wait and let the years slip by. What if Joshua... Or what if um, Joseph, you read in the end of Genesis, what if Joseph had just waited for a better situation? Well, I'm in prison now, I can't really serve God. What if he had waited to serve God? What if, same thing with Daniel, what if he waited until there was a better situation? No, no, my friends, don't let these hours and days and years slip by while you're wanting and waiting and wishing for a better situation to serve God. Because soon the sun won't be at high noon. It will begin to set. And you'll find your years have already passed you by. And what are you doing? You're still waiting and wishing and waiting. Wanting a better situation, better circumstances in which you might serve the church and serve God. No! Serve now in the context that He has for you. But it's not just Moses and Joshua and David. All of these point to the one to whom everything points. And that is Christ. He is our our standard that is held before us. And when we look for elders, let this be our guide. So here is Christ and He's leading the way, isn't He? But He's also serving. What does it say in verse 45? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. How easy and how natural would it have been for Christ to come? Come into His creation that He created and demanded to be worshipped with the worship that He is due. And with our worldly eyes, that is what we esteem, is it not? And those are the leaders that we want. Look at the eyes of the world. You have, so you have Julius Caesar. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a general and he goes over, sweets over southern Europe and starts to head south and he crosses the Rubicon and he's noticed there's no turning back. And he sweeps south and engages more with the Roman Senate and what does he do? He captures an empire. And he's worshipped as a god. That's what the world wants. 
Or you have Abraham Lincoln who leads this country through war when we were doing our best to kill ourselves from internal bleeding. And he leads us through that. That's what the world leaders, that's what the world wants. Or we look to men like Churchill and we listen to his speeches over and over. We see him as a statesman or a prolific author. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And without his leadership, we, we say the, the Allied forces would not have been aligned and Hitler would have never contemplated suicide in the bunker. Oh, these men, we think, is there nothing they cannot do with our worldly eyes? Is there nothing they cannot do? Well, perhaps, yeah. In the city of man, sure, there is nothing they cannot do. But they are entirely unqualified to serve, to do anything within the city of God. They can't lead anything. They couldn't lead a church of ten people. They're unqualified. Because they don't have God within them. It would crush them. The weight of a church of ten people would crush them. Because they don't have God sustaining them within. So we, we see these... Little, these two different spheres of, that is Christ is holding before us. He's leaving them, is he not, as they're going down to Jerusalem, but he's also serving. And so which one is it? We, we see two different silos with our worldly eyes. We see, we see Churchill leading. We don't see Churchill, we don't think of him as a servant. No. Leading, and then we all have over here serving. So what, which one is it, Christ? Well, it's, it's both. How does he lead? Well, he leads by serving. Does he not? He leads by serving. He, he washes the disciples' feet. He gives the lady the social outcast. He gives her the, the living water. He healed the lady who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. It was constantly reminded of her sorrow and her uncleanliness. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. But I hope you see that all of these sufferings are just the symptom of the true problem. The true problem, which is sin. So yes, he could still be here today, right? Bandaging wounds and healing people, raising up the next Lazarus, who would just again go on to die. But that would not, it would be of little use, wouldn't it? It wouldn't eliminate the true problem, but the problem of sin. This cancer that is growing within us, left unchecked by Christ, would continue to kill us. So yes, he could... He could continue to serve, but he served in the truest of ways. He served by giving his life. He came to serve as a king. And he took upon himself the wrath of God. He is the one who truly drank the cup of wrath from our Father, the Heavenly Father. He was the one that was baptized into death and made alive by the Spirit. And I hope you believe in this. Your soul depends upon it. But as a church, as we are looking for elders, let us be and let us settle for nothing less than men who will lead with their very lives at stake. Men that will lead by serving and let us all, let us all serve like kings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for our church that you would 
Give us a heart that would continue to serve like your son has served, that we would have our eyes fixed upon you and do it as, out of compulsion of joy to see you glorified, God. Would we have that heart within us? And we will forsake ourselves daily, hourly, to see you glorified in the midst of this church, to see you high and lifted up. God, could you work that that humbling, humbling work in our hearts that we could see you and be in awe of you in your throne. Amen.